Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Andrea Catherwood, well known, of course, for a time at the BBC, NBC, ITV, Channel 5, basically broadcast on every major news um, corporation, it seems, on the planet. Um, but such a prominent reporter in this country and, of course, a foreign correspondent in some fascinating places, including Afghanistan. And we do talk about that. But at the heart of this, from the first second, and you will be completely engrossed in this, is Andrea's experience growing up in Belfast and then covering Northern Ireland and the hugely hopeful experience of the Good Friday Agreement and 25 years later at Queen's University in Belfast, as we discussed just a few weeks ago, Andrea hosted a commemorative event with Hillary Clinton and George Mitchell. And we talk about Northern Irish and Irish politics in detail and what it means to her and to the people there and... Um, I mean, I've never felt so English in all my life. You know, you just realise, you know, I think, well, I'm someone who follows Irish and Northern Irish politics. And then actually you talk to someone who really, really does. And you're kind of embarrassed at how little you know. And this is just absolutely gripping from the first second. But it is, uh, it's so personal. It's, um, it's hopeful. <laughs> it's, you know, very early on, you go, oh, my God. This is just a, a different type of interview because Andrea is such a, a compelling communicator, but also just has incredible personal experience of growing up and, and her experience of then going to university in Manchester and how that shifted her perspective and made her reflect on the years that she'd experienced in Northern Ireland. But just ultimately, it's hopeful. I don't want to say anything more than that, but my word. Um, it, it, this is something very, very special. So uh, before I uh, stop waffling and cut uh, to uh, to this fantastic interview with Andrea, just to let you know some of the live guests coming up um, in the coming months. So my next guest at the Duchess Theatre on the 22nd of May is Labour heavyweight David Blunkett. That will be the first show back after the local election. So a lot to talk about there on the 5th of June. The 5th of June, even, my guest is Philip Hammond, a very rare interview with a former Conservative Chancellor who served in the Cameron and May governments. I think it's fair to say, not a fan of Boris Johnson. Be interesting to see what he has to say about Rishi Sunak and the uh, economic policy of the current Tory Prime Minister and Chancellor. On the 19th of June, a rare, an even rarer gem, Margaret Beckett. Um, obviously a career spanning the decades and the eras. She gives very few interviews, so that is something very special. On the 3rd of July, my guest is the comedian uh, Joe Lysett, is also known, of course, for his increasing uh, activism. And on the 2nd of October, and there are lots of shows in between that I'm yet to book or yet to confirm, on the 2nd of October, my guest is the frontman of the Sleaford Mods, Jason Williamson, the uh, the satirical punk outfit. So uh, a real mix of guests coming up in the coming weeks and months. But... I shall stop the self-promotion and cut now to a very, very special interview with Andrea Catherwood.
Andrea, first things first, a few weeks ago, you hosted one of the events at Queen's University Belfast to mark 25 years uh, since the signing of the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that event was attended by everyone, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton. The one that you did was, was Hillary Clinton and Senator George Mitchell. As someone from Belfast who grew up during a time where things were very unstable and then lived through Good Friday and then being able to look back 25 years later, Firstly, how much did it mean to be a part of an event like that? It meant a lot, actually. Um, I I was asked to do it. Uh, Northern Ireland's a very small place, so I was asked to do it by uh, by somebody from Queen's University who I'd actually known when I was a, a teenager and just starting out at BBC Northern Ireland a long time ago. Um, and I think being back there in that room with so many people who had been a part of it, because, of course, we remember Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, um, but perhaps we don't remember so many of the local activists, those community workers, lots of women who were remembered for the first time, probably in all, all those 25 years. We've, very, we've talked very little about women and communities there and seeing them all together, hearing their stories and being able to say thank you was extremely moving and to think that you know 25 years ago we would have hardly dared believe that while this piece is very imperfect and there are a lot of things in Northern Ireland that need to change um we're in such a better place than we were 25 years ago so yes it was it was uh it was a fairly harrowing experience being on stage not least because I'm not sure if you know that um I was introducing uh the, the main event, which was Bill Clinton uh, and uh, Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, and they were going to be interviewed, not by me, but by Hillary Clinton. Um, and all I had to do was show a video and then do an introduction, which I had beautifully crafted, and then everyone would applaud and they'd come on stage and I would leave. So I stood on stage, I showed the video, and then I could see in the wings, the stage manager, this poor woman sort of looking at me desperately and putting her hand across her neck. And she was gesturing that they were not there. Now, they had been there. And I have to admit, I probably shouldn't say this, but one of them had nipped off to the loo, right? So, Which one? So, I, I, honestly, honestly, I don't know, Matt. I don't know. Um, but I was left there then ad-libbing. I mean, it's actually every presenter's worst nightmare, particularly when I could see the great and the good of, you know, Northern Ireland, Dublin, London, beyond. They're all there waiting for this momentous event. It was the kind of the, the pinnacle of the day. And I'm left going, um, right, kind of racking my brains to think, you know, what else can I say? So I start sort of expanding their CVs, you know, as if anyone in the audience needs me to tell them who Tony Blair is, you know, or Bill Clinton worse, you know, and then and then eventually um, I get the kind of the thumbs up. <laughs> and so I said, I just said, look, I think I think obviously the audience by this stage had kind of twigged and I had fessed up and said, look, I have to say that they're not quite here. So I got a big laugh. And then I said, look, you know, I am, you know, I, I am delighted to be able to introduce and trust me, no one is more delighted than me to be able to introduce and then went on with the introduction in the end. But, you know, it was they were amazing. That was a bit of a hair raising moment. And every presenter will tell you there's nothing more heart stopping than being on stage and having to fill, fill, fill. But overall, um, I think that was 
a probably a tiny little part of the day. And the day was uh, that day. And I think all three days were pretty momentous for everybody who was there. Do you get a sense among that um, generation, that, that, that group of politicians that were at the centre of it, mm. that they're all, I mean, I know they, they come from different political traditions, different generations, some of them. Um, but, but do you get the sense that they're all pretty united still on the uh, importance, not just of the Good Friday Agreement, but of getting things going again in Northern Ireland? I think there's a bit of a divide there because I think a lot of the people who were involved in it at the time, um, and particularly those more moderate unionists, because, of course, the DUP did not take part in those negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement, but the more moderate unionists who came from the Ulster Unionist Party and many, you know, some of those, um, David Trimble, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but those people who were working with him um, were still there. And there's definitely the feeling, I think, that anyone who spent a lot of time in those talks in Stormont, um, and I, I I, wasn't there inside Stormont, um, although I was reporting elsewhere, but they were, I think they were pretty brutal. And I think anyone who was through those kind of was sort of forged in a crucible. You know, and they have a bond together. And I think that many of them talk about the compromises that all of them had to make, really difficult compromises that lost them votes, um, lost some of them a lot of votes, particularly the Ulster Unionist Party at the time. But, you know, they made they made the choices that they felt they could in order to bring about the best peace agreement that they could. And I think that amongst those who were there, Yes, even though they definitely still come from very different political backgrounds, but there is a feeling that, look, we when we put this together, we really wanted it to work for the ages and we're, we're desperate to try and make that happen. However, um, I would say that there is still and there is an increasing political divide, uh, you know, in, in Northern Ireland, which is very difficult at the moment. Um, and, you know, there are. A, there is a sizable portion of the uh, of the more extreme unionist community who do not want the institutions to get up and running again the way things are. So, you know, that obviously is far from ideal when we're sitting talking about 25 years from the Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about this, but, you know, Joe Biden might have been in Northern Ireland for a lot longer if he could have had uh, if he could have made an address at Stormont. And do you think uh, I mean, obviously, you, you talk about the DP not being involved in the first place, but th those individuals that, that made the political and personal sacrifice on all sides mm. of the political divide obviously had uh, their personal reputations and the reputations of their parties to carry. 25 years later, parties that weren't involved or even leaders that weren't involved perhaps might not feel the same loyalty to the agreement that, you know, on the Sinn Féin side, that Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams, you know, were crucial individuals in that, does Mary Lou and, and the others, do they feel as emotionally connected to that deal as perhaps Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness did? That's really interesting. Um, I recently interviewed uh, Mary Lou MacDonald, the the head of Sinn Féin in, in all of Ireland, uh, for a documentary that I'm doing for BBC Radio 4. And I think that she is actually deeply committed to the Good Friday Agreement, um, but also she is committed to taking this further in a way that in the 25 years ago, Sinn Féin had made that accommodation to come round the table and they were not talking about the reunification 
of Ireland. They were talking about the Good Friday Agreement at that point. 25 years on, although I think that Mary Lou Macdonald and Sinn Féin are very committed to the Good Friday Agreement, they see that as a stepping stone to move forward, to have a referendum, to have a border poll on the future of Ireland, which, of course, was one of the fears that some unionists had at the time, that this Good Friday Agreement would not be enough for certain sections of nationalism. And actually, 25 years on, and it's not because of the Good Friday Agreement, there's probably a lot more to do with Brexit um, and to do with the changing demographics of Northern Ireland um, and indeed the, the economy of the South of Ireland and lots of other things. Um, but certainly things have changed quite dramatically during that time. Um, and, and Sinn Féin are more focused on the future rather than uh, celebrating Good Friday Agreement, although they absolutely, um, let's be very clear, they are, the Sinn Féin are very keen to uh, stand by the Good Friday Agreement. However, they are also looking to the future um, and certainly would like to see a referendum on the future of the whole of the island of Ireland. They obviously got a historic uh, electoral result in, in, in the last uh, election there. The first time that the unionists haven't won a majority mm. uh, at Stormont and, and Stormont hasn't really sat since. Do you get a sense anecdotally that politics in Northern Ireland is changing, that um, not only perhaps might more people be open to the thought of a united Ireland and for voting for Sinn Féin in order to get that, but that also nationalist and unionist um, voting blocks have, have broken down? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest change is that idea that the nationalist and unionist voting blocs are are, complete, are are different. This middle ground, um, which is a really interesting area to look at in Northern Ireland, because, of course, when I was growing up, really, everybody either voted, uh, voted for unionists, there was a couple of unionist parties, or they voted for the nationalist parties. Sinn Féin, at that point, had a very small amount of the nationalist vote and the larger one was the the SDLP under John Hume who some older listeners will remember and actually the middle ground the alliance party as they were then now just called alliance had very few of the votes really um that's changed for a lot of reasons it's changed because a lot of people now don't see themselves as either protestant or catholic as in the rest of the UK and elsewhere a lot fewer people go to church than they used to. Um, there hasn't been the same kind of um, immigration into Northern Ireland as there have been to for various parts of, of the U of other parts of the UK. But there still is enough that there are other communities in Ireland now, in Northern Ireland now, who are not the traditional Protestant or Catholic communities. There's also, of course, a lot of intermarriage. Young people um, very often don't feel that kind of affiliation. And therefore, Alliance, which sits in the middle, and also the Green Party, have have garnered quite a lot of votes because a lot of people are much more concerned um, about the same things that everybody else is concerned about rather than actually voting for what was traditionally the orange or the green. So, I mean, that's changed hugely. And actually, if there were ever to be a border poll, it would actually be those people, the people in the middle, that will make the difference, that they will decide whether Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom or 
part of a united Ireland, because, of course, the people who are wedded to the unionist vote will always vote to remain part of the United Kingdom. Nationalists, we can assume, will vote to, uh, to, to join a united Ireland, although this is not an exact science, of course. So the balance will be held by those people in the middle, and they're largely younger. Um, and they largely hold more progressive views. So, for example, on issues like uh, women's reproductive rights, on gay marriage, and they often um, were also more pro-European. Uh, Northern Ireland, as you probably know, voted to remain within the European Union. And, uh, and so a lot of people who actually would probably vote to remain in the United Kingdom in a border poll actually would have preferred to stay in the EU, which, of course, 48% of people across the country, if the United Kingdom did as well. And is there any toxicity towards the Sinn Féin brand for, for young people? I mean, I, I'm sure for some older voters, mm. you know, it's still a byword for terrorism, uh, however things mm. may have changed. Um, do younger people appreciate the weight of those words and are they bothered? And should they be? Yeah, I know it's so interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting that, isn't it? Because of course, you know, for a lot of for a lot of older voters um, and nationalists as well as unionists and those in the middle ground, there is a feeling that um, that they, they can't quite get over um, what Sinn Fein have have stood for and indeed sometimes when they see now a republican funeral for example um they still find that very difficult some of the marches that take place you know there is there is a feeling particularly amongst older people that 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 Sinn Féin in fact possibly might hamper the idea of a united Ireland that actually their desire for it if they are the largest party that those persuadables that I was talking about the middle ground would actually feel that while perhaps they would vote for a united Ireland under somebody who looks like a progressive European, for example, Leo Varadkar in, in the South, that actually a Mary Lee MacDonald figure might be harder to swallow because for some people that would feel like they gave in. Like, in fact, all those years of the Troubles when the, the IRA wanted to, through violence, create a united Ireland that perhaps in the end Sinn Féin won. And that is the, you know, that is just the fact for a lot of, for, for a lot of older people. Now, you're right, Sinn Féin has completely rebranded itself in the south of Ireland, particularly where it now has a, at least a third of the vote and indeed could be the largest party in, in the next, in the next uh, general election down there. There, a lot of young people don't see Sinn Féin as that at all. They see it as the progressive party of the left. And the issues that they campaign on are inequality, they are housing, and they're those same issues that, you know, people are interested in you know, throughout the throughout the UK as well. And they would be more on the, you know, on, on the, not, not quite the far left, but certainly far-ish left. Um, and so for a lot of young people, no, that's not how they see Sinn Féin at all. You know, most people in the south of Ireland were largely untouched by the Troubles, as indeed they were um, on, on the mainland in Britain. Um, that's not to say they didn't see it every night on their televisions and that it doesn't, and it is not something that they remember, but day in, day out, they weren't affected by it in the same way as we were growing up in the North. And that's that's just a fact. So the younger generation didn't grow up with that kind of intergenerational trauma, if you like, that a lot of people in Northern Ireland, younger people in Northern Ireland have experienced because of what happened to their parents and, and their parents' generation. So I think that uh, 
I think that there is a very, very different view of Sinn Féin amongst young people in the South. And there are a lot of people I know, um, maybe middle class people whose sons and daughters are now going off to university who are voting for Sinn Féin when their parents would never have dreamt of voting for Sinn Féin. But they are voting. Those younger people are voting for them because they can't get a house to live in. They'll, they won't be able to afford to buy a house in their lifetime and they can barely afford to rent. Um, and because of issues around inequality and because they see them as a progressive left-wing party, which is what Sinn Féin has transformed into. And it, it's so hard, I think, for, even for people in Britain to try and put themselves in the shoes of the people of Northern Ireland regarding the troubles and the role of the British state and paramilitaries on both sides and political parties on both sides. And just what that must have done, not just for the day-to-day -day reality of uh, effectively having a war zone on your front door, but also what it must do for your trust in institutions and people, your relationship with your neighbours and your community and your sense of identity. I mean, th there's nowhere in the United Kingdom where this is more profound than in Northern Ireland. And I, I don't know, can you give us an insight into that in, in a personal way? It, I, I just don't think people in Britain can really fully appreciate what the people of Northern Ireland went through in those terms. No, I, I, I think it is almost impossible to imagine. And, you know, I I don't think I understood it until perhaps I went over to university in in Manchester um, in the in the late 80s, um, because, of course, it was my reality. I grew up with it. And, you know, in Northern Ireland, everybody knew somebody who was directly affected by the troubles when I mean directly affected I mean they had their house burnt down or they they lost they lost a life or they were injured and you know nobody ever mentioned it and the reason people didn't talk about it was because because it had happened to everybody it, it almost it, it almost felt I suppose it felt like why would you know you're not special you know just I mean my when I look back on it for example um I don't think I've ever told anybody else this. Uh, <laughs> certainly not 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 on the air. But you know, my my uncle's house was burned down. They were burned out of their house. They lived they they lived very close to us in North Belfast, and my aunt was held to gunpoint while they did that um, on in the front garden of her house. And my father's uh, a business, which he he was a family business, had been blown up a couple of times before that. Um, and this was in the 70s, and I, I can remember it all very clearly. They came to live with us, which, of course, I thought was great because, you know, who doesn't want their cousins to come and live with them at the time? I thought that was brilliant because I was a I was a kid and I love my cousins. Um, and then we all moved out of North Belfast to uh, just to a little bit further out where 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 it was a little bit safer. It never occurred to me to, to repeat that story, because, to be honest, that kind of thing happened to everybody. You know, similar stories like that happen to everybody. You know, one of my best friends at school, his dad was shot dead um, while he worked in a garage and um, while his little sister was in a car. And you know something, I didn't even know the the, the details of that story until a lot later when um, there's a bit there's a book that's been published uh, by a, a, a very well-known journalist called David McKittrick um, called Lost Lives and it literally... It literally categorizes everyone's every, every single person who died in the troubles and how they did. And we didn't we knew that this boy's dad had been killed, but we didn't ask any questions about it because because we were young and we didn't have the words. And also 
I suppose because although that was a real tragedy, it, it was far from unique. Um, so, yeah, so we grew up, you know, I, we grew up hearing gunfire. I mean, I, I went to school in East Belfast. Then we moved, um, you know, from from North Belfast to, uh, to, to North Down. And, you know, we just... You know, we we got used to a life where we were much more guarded about who we spoke to and what we said and who's who, you know, what name you. We grew up a lot quicker. When I came over to university in England, I felt everybody was uh, I felt those those 18 year olds were a lot less mature than I was. And, and that, that's true. They were because I had grown up knowing which bus to take and what to say to a taxi driver and, you know, and had been in plenty of bomb scares and indeed, you know, what you know, coped with bombs going off and dealing with all sorts of things that nobody should ever have to deal with. And yet, and yet I knew that I was extremely lucky. I was very fortunate. We lived in a nice area. My, you know, my father, my father was on a death list. So he did have bulletproof glass in his car. Um, but we, you know, we used to check under the, under the, car every day you know for that little kind of fishing rod hook that goes around the wheel that's a um that you know that can be uh that be the the, the the trigger for a bomb but you know what my family were all safe and fine and they lived through the troubles and so I was extremely fortunate and I consider myself really fortunate today um so yeah it was it I'm just telling you one story but that's this everybody Loads of people have got much worse stories than that. And that's just what growing up in Northern Ireland was like. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And, and your dad was on a death list because he was a journalist? No, no, because he was a businessman. Um, so he was, uh, they, they targeted, uh, they targeted businesses uh, during the 70s and 80s in an attempt to um, kind of destabilise the Northern Ireland. I mean, he was a, he 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 was a build. He he's, he it was a building supply business. So that kind of infrastructure was targeted. So it wasn't a personal thing. It was uh it was a business thing. Um, and there was also an IRA campaign to uh, target companies who supplied to the armed forces. And so my father, although. I come from a mixed background, but my father was Protestant and he made the, I think, quite difficult decision for him that he wouldn't supply to the armed forces at all. Because as he said, it's not necessarily him that would be targeted, but it could be a delivery driver. And he just wasn't prepared to take on that um, that responsibility. So I think that didn't sit that well with him, but I know that he knew it was the right decision because he felt responsible. It was a family business and he felt responsible for trying to keep everybody within the business safe. So then when you come to Manchester at 18, mm. at what point do you begin to process and realise that actually you're, you're 
background and your your upbringing in North Belfast at that time was not just completely different, but in a way it, it, completely unusual for for mm. for everyone else. I think it took me quite a long time to realise that actually. Um, I can remember uh, a, a student friend of mine who was a, a, an activist. She was going off to to a, 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 a party conference, and um, it was not. It must mustn't have been that long after the um, the the uh, attack on um, the Tory party in Brighton, and I can remember sort of saying to her, "Oh well, look, if there is a you know if you if you see a flash, don't wait for a bang. You know, obviously just hit the hit the floor." And she was just like, what, what are you talking about? You know, and I thought, gosh, you, you've no idea. I mean, that's just something that, you know, we grew up with as a kind of 101, you know, because the light, you know, light travels quicker. I wasn't very good at physics, but I did know that. So, you know, I mean, we 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 grew up much just in a completely different world. And I suppose I suppose I went into journalism and then I became a foreign correspondent. So maybe I stayed slightly in that world. And there are quite a few um, Northern Irish uh, journalists who who went down that route. And perhaps, um, yeah, many of us, uh, yeah, many of us understood a lot more about conflict elsewhere, perhaps because uh, because of what we we grew up with in Northern Ireland. But yeah, I think it was it was quite a long time before I realised that that what we'd grown up with really wasn't normal. And also I think that, as I say, because there was this kind of collective trauma, everybody grew up in the same way. And all of us who didn't have, a, you know, a, literally a family member um, uh, who, who was really badly affected by the troubles felt very lucky. And I think that for a while there was almost this kind of myth that like, oh, we were hardly affected by the troubles. We were very, very lucky. We lived in a great part of town. You know, there are beautiful views. There's lovely scenery in Northern Ireland, all of which is true. There are lovely people. There's great scenery. Northern Ireland is a wonderful place. But yeah, I think we had probably in order to survive it. I think, you know, we all had to accept that this, you know, my, I look back and I think those were my formative years. I was born as the troubles began. Um, and, you know, my parents, I had this conversation with my parents when I was older. I said, you know, had you known that this was going to go on and on and on and it was going to be like this, would you have left? And they said, well, yeah, maybe we would. And, you know, maybe we would. But then, you know that's where our livelihood was. That's where grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody else lived. So it's not, it wasn't that easy a decision, um, but perhaps more people would have left. And, and, you know, quite a few people did leave. I remember being at school and, and families leaving to move to either the South of Ireland or over to Scotland or to England. Um, and maybe more would have left if they had known that it would go on for such a long time and that it would be, it, you know, it would be such a part of the fabric of of our upbringing how did how did you and and how do you resist the temptation to succumb to and i don't necessarily know that you have but it sounds like you haven't a sort of bitterness and resentment almost you know if, if i'd come from your background and i was at university just you know a few miles over the water where people might have been sort of blissfully unaware of the reality of the lives that you and your family were living in a way you'd almost be or I would be, it sort of tends to be sort of offended and annoyed or, mm. you know, when you see the sort of usual <laughs> student activism and the indulgences yeah. that it involves, how did you, how did you, you know, remain so calm and gracious and, and, and how have you continued to? I, it's interesting. You see, I think I came over to England and I was desperate to fit in. I didn't really want to talk about Northern Ireland. I, 
I can remember realising really quite early on how little people in England really understood about what was going on. You know, we were all paddies. And I can remember more than one person, bearing in mind I was at Manchester University studying law. Um, I remember people saying, you know, oh, they should just nuke the lot. And I thought, wow, wow. Um, I've learned a lot since then that, you know, there are there are a lot of people in, in England who don't really know very much about Northern Ireland. But why would they? You know, Northern Ireland is 2% of the population of the United Kingdom. You know, we, we take up a lot of news time. We take up a lot of headlines. Um I think I was desperate, as many of my generation were, to get away, to live a normal life, to go hang out in the Hacienda and go to the International and walk home and not worry about all those things that I had to worry about in Northern Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I think rather than being bitter, I was excited to be out of Northern Ireland and, and desperate to fit into this new environment. And, yeah, I probably... There were conversations that I ducked out of um, when people said stupid things about Northern Ireland. Um, and I tried, I think, I don't think I had very many constructive or, or unconstructive arguments, but I'm sure there was a few late night ones about what, what, you know, what I thought the future was. At that time, though, the future of Northern Ireland was so bleak. I mean, in the end of the end of the 80s, I couldn't see a way out. And, and I know having talked to quite a few high profile politicians at the time, they couldn't really see much of a way out either. So I suppose like a lot, a lot of people of my generation, we, when the, those of us who had the chance to go to university and remember we had a full grant at that point, we didn't pay any university fees. Um, there was a means tested maintenance grant and we went to university free in the whole of the UK and we did in our thousands and one of the tragedies of Northern Ireland of course is that so many people of my generation left and we didn't come back and then so when you find yourself just the other week at Queen's mm. University Belfast on the 25th anniversary of Good Friday you know a hugely hopeful event an amazing thing to be at to be commemorating having been born in the first year of the Troubles lived through all that I mean obviously you're a highly skilled broadcaster and journalist uh, you're in you know frequently in positions where you have to put personal feelings to one side and just get on with the job but was that something different it, it, do you think of your childhood in moments like that you know before you take to the stage do you think of your parents or is it not that sort of thing oh I could have cried I mean when George Mitchell um who who was the senator the American senator who was sent by Bill Clinton to do all of those negotiations you know before the kind of the limelight moment where Tony Blair felt the hand of history on his shoulder you know before all that Senator Mitchell had been there for months and months and months talking knocking heads together and really trying to do all this uh, amazing groundwork that that's without which we would not have had the Good Friday Agreement the troubles would not have come to an end when they did and he was there he's almost 90 he made the most amazing speech amazing it was absolutely spellbinding explaining in detail just how he did it but he also was the most fantastic raconteur and um you know had the had the place laughing and crying and everything else but honestly when I came on stage after that to thank him I could have cried because I could have I could have thanked him not just from me but from every single person in the room from for all of my nephews and nieces who still live there for the fact, you know, for all of those people. 
I could have cried, but I didn't, of course, because I didn't say very much and everybody else clapped and then I left the stage again. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it is so heartening to see where Northern Ireland is now. And, you know, I, I know it's always caveated by saying that there are still so many problems, but from where we were, from what it was like when I grew up, I mean, it's it is transformed and it's transformed because the Good Friday Agreement brought about the end of the Troubles. When you're there and you see Jerry Adams there, I mean, mm. is there any sort of residual feeling towards people like that? You know, your dad was an, on an IRA death mm. list and then you're an event with Jerry Adams, you know, obviously. Well, you know, the funny thing is the first time I met Jerry yeah. Adams, I was 17 and I interviewed him for BBC Northern Ireland uh, for a television programme called Upfront. And um, it was interesting. So it was young people um, interviewing politicians and, uh, uh, and as I said before, you know, Northern Ireland punched above its weight. So we interviewed some very, very important politicians. But what was funny about that was that everybody else that we'd interviewed, so the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland or the Taoiseach of the Irish Republic or whatever, after we did the interview, because we were very young, I think I was the youngest, I was 17, the rest were all sort of students, but everybody was under 21. I think there were four of us on the panel. And these great and good politicians, all men, obviously, were kind of whisked upstairs to some boardroom or somewhere that we never saw to be greeted by the uh, you know, top execs at BBC and maybe sit down with a gin and tonic or a whiskey. I have no idea because we weren't invited. But of course, when Gerry Adams was doing the interview, the great and the good of the BBC did not want to go and see him. This is actually before the broadcasting ban where he wasn't allowed to speak at all and no one from Sinn Féin was. So we ended up sitting with him and having tea and sandwiches and a chat, and like this is this is in the middle. This is in the in the mid late eighties, maybe eighty six, eighty seven, and um, no, I think it's probably before that, probably about eighty five, uh, before the broadcasting ban anyway. And um, you know the thing about Jerry Adams is that he is a a personable and charismatic man when you meet him one on one as an individual and you know that is a skill that he has that you know he would not be the leader he is if he did not have charisma now that doesn't mean that you agree with the politics with his politics um but like any leader bill clinton has charisma in spades you know there are very very few leaders who can really garner that kind of following who are not able to, to work a room. Um, and do I feel bitterness? No, I really am somebody who I've, I've immersed myself in Irish history. I know a lot about Irish history. My, my, my own grandfather on my mother's side, he was a hunger striker in the, in the Irish civil war. So, you know, history is very complicated. And the more that you know, probably, I think the less bitter you are, maybe the more that you understand. Well, that's it. It's, I mean, I think for a lot of people, their relationship with history is just about where you draw the, you know, where do you, where do you set the deadline? Because, you know, there, mm -hmm. there are certain parts of your family history that are convenient if you go back one generation, but go back two yeah. or three and it can be a very different story. Mm -hmm. and, and I think just un understanding, you know, understanding Understanding Irish history is not easy, but under, the more that you can understand it and the more you understand where everybody is coming from, I think the less bitter you become, perhaps, and the more you can see other people's points of view. Um, 
and that probably uh i mean perhaps if if we could you know <laughs> sometimes i i wonder if we should you know if we should know less about our history and probably there are times when all of the flags and symbols and the important things from our history can be quite destructive but actually really trying to really trying to understand where people come from is probably a very good way of uh, of knowing how to go forward in the future i'm a big believer in in the more that the more the more knowledge you have I think the more power that you have and the more empathetic perhaps that you can be. So no, the short answer to that is I have no problem at all in seeing Jerry Adams or um, Ian Paisley Jr. or any other member of uh, any political party at all. Um, and I think that uh, I think that, you know, we we everybody's voice has got to be listened to in Northern Ireland. And, you know, part of the problem with the troubles, you know, the, that led to the troubles was people's voices not being listened to. When you're not able to speak, you, you find other methods of getting your point across. You mentioned it earlier, but you've worked in some incredible places in the world and reported from some astounding places. In 2001, you were the first British journalist in Mazar-e-Sharif in Afghanistan after it was captured back from the Taliban. Do you think there's something about where you grew up and the time that you grew up that led you to report from places like that? I think so. Um, I think that uh, the first time I went to um, uh, I went to to Bosnia and Croatia was um, I, it was I was working for um, for local TV in Northern Ireland for Ulster Television, and I was just there following an aid convoy for this morning. You know, I wasn't there as a war reporter, but when I uh, when I met those people and did that trip, I was very I was really young at the time. I did think, gosh, this is I, I this is something that I'd love to do. You know, I'd love to tell these stories, um, and I suppose you know it might have been that I. I had a bit of a head start maybe on some other journalists because perhaps I understood these places a little bit more and I understood that kind of particularly that kind of internecine conflict that we saw um you know in in that part of the world and indeed you know elsewhere you know when I got to Iraq and uh, there were those that that kind of neighborhood to neighborhood conflict after the fall of Saddam it was kind of familiar territory I guess um yeah, they used to do these things called battlefield training courses where they send all the journalists, all the reporters off to some nice place in Hampshire and teach us not to stand on landmines and things. And um, <laughs> there was always bits of it that they'd kind of, because they were all, they're all ex-Marines and things. So they would kind of look at me and go, right, you from Northern Ireland, you, you're not going to, you can't do, don't do this bit because you already know all about it, you know. And I was there like the kid with my hand up going, yeah, yeah, I know, I know how to, I know how to see if there's a car bomb there, you know. Um, so I suppose there was a little bit of that. Um yeah, and maybe you're not quite as as scared. Maybe you're a bit more aware that you know, while dreadful things happen, they tend to happen in in one location. So, you know, there can actually be a war raging around you, and you can be relatively safe. Um, and also, back when I was doing it, very often journalists were were a not targets, but b often looked after a little bit better than journalists are looked after today. So I actually. I know it wasn't particularly safe, but I did do it in a safer time than today. And thinking of some of the, you know, the issues today, uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, China, are, th are there any places that you wouldn't want to go? I'm very glad I didn't have to go to Syria. Um, my, my, uh, a woman who I knew and respected a lot and who was a good friend, Marie Colvin, was killed in Syria and she was an incredibly experienced journalist for the Sunday Times. And, um, you know, she was targeted because um, they were able to 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 
sort of triangulate where she was. Um, uh, and that was something that didn't happen in our day um, because they don't think they, they just had didn't quite have that equipment. Um, I think that's just an incredibly dangerous place to be. And um, I wouldn't fancy being in Khartoum at the moment, but uh, at the moment, no journalists are there, although I'm sure that that will change. And, and seeing these places, you know, in different regions in the world, has it given you effectively a philosophy or a take on the human experience or humanity or, you know, do you kind of have a view of whether people are good or bad or whatever? I don't, I don't know. You know, are there any, are there any things that bind all these things together? Yeah. Well, I think, I suppose, look, I think most people are good, you know, and I think that what I've seen everywhere I've gone is that what people care about and, and perhaps often it's women because in refugee situations, you just see a lot more women because the men maybe are, are, are fighting or whatever. Um, what people really, really want are the things are, are it's universal. You know, they want security. They want to be able to raise their children. They want to be able to get on with those basics. The things that the things that we actually take for granted, you know, nearly all the time, that kind of safety and security and actually, you know, it just goes to the fact that those are so, I know that sounds so basic, but that is what, that is something that universally binds us, you know, and whether you're looking at, a, you know, somebody who's, who's living in, in Derry or whether they're in Darfur or whether they're in Hong Kong or Mozambique, you know, those things are the same. People love their kids. They love their families and all they want is the opportunity to, to live in peace and bring them up basically. You mentioned Hong Kong. You were there in 1997 when it was handed over back to China from the British. Uh, and obviously in the last few years, it's become a, a real focal point. Mm. I just wonder what that experience was like and, and, what oh, lessons there relief. are about yeah. empire and, and positionless <laughs> beyond uh, mm. the island of Britain. I don't know. Well, I lived there for five years um, and I loved Hong Kong. It was really formative for me, actually. It was where I got my, you know, a real start as a journalist, because although I worked in, in Northern Ireland, um, uh, there was a kind of an opportunity to go to Hong Kong and kind of leapfrog and be given opportunities that I'd never have been given at the age that I was uh, at home. And so I was based there, but I went to Laos and Cambodia and interviewed Dan San Suu Kyi and made loads of mistakes, of course, um, but in a place where not very many people saw, really. And then I worked for the... Um, the uh, US channel uh, for NBC it was NBC Asia and CNBC, which was their finance operation. Um, and I loved covering the handover. Um, and I loved Hong Kong and I, I and the people. And it's slightly it's been heartbreaking by degrees to see that, to see the changes that have taken place there. And those and to see the bravery of those young people who I have to say back then, I I felt were pretty apolitical and I mean, it was a very consumerist place. And actually to see them blossom into people who are prepared to be so brave has been a, a bit of a revelation to me, actually. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, colonialization. I'm from Northern Ireland. What can I tell you? It doesn't end well, you know? Um, it leaves a mess in its wake everywhere all the time uh, there are very few examples of where it hasn't you know um and you know you look at the eco the the economic viability of the south of ireland now there are very few places where the colonized country becomes better off than the the colonizer and that's now what's happened with the republic of ireland and the uk and i'm not sure that there are many other examples in the world 
it, it normally doesn't end well. It's it's very messy and it takes a long time. And you know that's what's happened for the the poor people of Hong Kong. Um, and you know where that goes, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I I really feel for them today, and I really really admire their bravery. As well as the very serious and important work that you do, um, you've done other things away from journalism. You were meant to do the X Factor in 2006 with James Hewitt, <laughs> or is that an internet rumour? No, I don't to do think it. it well, I think they did ask me to do it and, and ITN said no. And probably we were all very, very much saved by that. I think it was a it was some kind of celebrity X Factor. So I think probably whoever that editor was in ITN saved the world from um, uh, something they probably didn't need to see. <laughs> Uh, you present ditto dances on ice and various other things like that as well you know yeah are there are there any reality shows you'd like to do no i'd be awful at all of them i think <laughs> i think at least thing i know i can't dance occasionally i think i can sing so i think <laughs> but but generally no i don't think so the kids would love me to to, to go on master chef because i think they just think that that would be funny to watch me cook um but i i i suppose if there was ever anything that you could do, I suppose the stakes are lower. You know, I think you can probably make less of a tit of yourself on MasterChef than other places. Um, but basically, no, it's just not my thing. No, I think I've never been general. about celebrity. You know, it's just not. It's it's. Uh, um, I don't know. I love I, I love the ability. I love the chance to make programs and and tell people stories. But I think other people's stories are maybe more interesting than mine. Well, one of the programmes you make is Feedback for Radio 4, where listeners air their opinions about the BBC. And obviously we're in a period where, I mean, we're always in a period where our relationship with the BBC is uh, difficult and the BBC's relationship with the government is difficult. I mean, do you have a view of whether the public's relationship with the BBC is changing, whether people are perhaps a bit more cynical about it now? Yeah, I don't really know. I'm supposed to be making this program right now, and instead I'm talking to you. By the way, <laughs> oh, God. Um, but yes, um, you know it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we pay for subscription channels now without really batting an eyelid. You know, we pay for Netflix, and we and I and and we pay for Sky, and yet the license fee does seem to be a real stumbling block, and I. I mean, this is me talking just as an individual here, nothing to do with any any work that I do for the BBC. But I do look at this and I think, oh, hold on, you know, if we were to pay, we pay a fraction of the license of, of, of what we pay for, you know, a subscription channel for the BBC. And perhaps if it was seen as a subscription, maybe it might feel a little bit more comfortable than the license fee. I don't know. I suspect people have been complaining about the BBC for as long as the BBC's existed. In fact, I don't suspect, I do know that because of my job on feedback. So, um, I, you know, look, of course it's, you know, of course that our relationship with it's changed. You know, I've got three teenagers and of course they don't watch the news in the same way that that I did growing up. I mean, they don't sit there and watch the news at six o'clock ever. And I actually sort of wonder if I said to them to name the terrestrial channels, if they could actually, if they'd actually know which ones are terrestrial. I'm, I'm actually not sure they would because they've grown up with you know, even when they were watching CBBS as kids, it all came up on a, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't those, it wasn't, <laughs> I was back in the day where you actually pressed a button, you know. Um, so I suppose it's, I suppose, of course, our relationship with the BBC has changed. 
Um, but that doesn't mean, I mean, look, I know I would say this, but I am a massive, massive fan of trusted journalism. And I can promise you that, of course, the BBC gets things wrong. And, you know, my job on feedback is often to highlight that when they do. But, you know, particularly in terms of foreign news, there is nobody that I would trust more. And if I was sitting in, in Khartoum at the moment and I needed to know what was going on, I know who I would trust. It must be quite an awkward show to make because you're working for the BBC. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, only the BBC would allow you to do a program where you get somebody on from the BBC and then give them a really, really hard time about the decisions they've made about the BBC. You know, you know, this week I'm laying into somebody about local radio cuts and BBC singers. I, you know, I, I've I, I've done numerous weeks um and you know and, and then that was turned around uh so yeah I mean it is a really it is a really BBC thing to do <laughs> I appreciate that but you know that's the thing it is public service broadcasting and I'm there to represent the listeners so these aren't my views you know I'm there saying look this is what the listeners have said to us I guess in the old days it was a post bag now you know we it comes through on Twitter or, or by email and you know they are complaining about this or indeed sometimes they're saying that this is brilliant this is funny this is great you know um and so but i'm there as a kind of a conduit for them and to hold the bbc to account but is that tricky for you do you get treated differently do you think to, to other bbc contractors or employees <laughs> i tell you something oh, i say think... that in front of andrea and end up on the end up on the radio <laughs> i'll tell you what i remember i went along to as a, um the, there was the 100 years of the bbc and i used to work as you know in itv and itv used to hold parties all the time it's quite fun and um, the bbc very rarely does but they did have a party for this 100 years um and it was quite a fancy uh do and everyone was really really nice to me and i thought oh <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed a difference. I don't think when I was doing other programs, they were, you know, the, the kind of the management, you know, I don't think there was quite so many of them coming up to me and being really nice. So maybe, um, you know, maybe it gives me a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of kudos because they might think I don't really want her to be really mean about my programs. But, you know, that's not what I'm there for. I absolutely don't decide. The listeners decide what we do, not me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I mean, it is an it is an interesting program. It's a bit of a weird program, but I also, you know, I do two things because I also make documentaries. So I'm still within the BBC making documentaries. And I suppose the one thing that we probably can't do on feedback is discuss my own documentaries. But uh, uh, I, I get to do both. So that's good. Do you get to uh, and I know you've got a show to make, so I won't keep you much longer. But do you get to pick what documentaries you make? How much? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I only do ones that I um promote so I basically go I talk to the editors at um at Radio 4 when I've got an idea um and recently I've done them all about Ireland so I did a, a three-part documentary um on unionism and the one that I'm doing at the moment um is about whether or not the south of Ireland how they really feel about the prospect of reunification uh, because there's a kind of an assumption that, you know, we talked a bit earlier about Northern Ireland and whether or not there might ever be a border poll, but there's an assumption that this is only the Norse question to answer. And it's not, because under the Good Friday Agreement, the South would also have to have a referendum to decide if they wanted to become part of one island again. Um, and so, you know, that would be a financial cost to them. There are lots of other issues. Obviously, traditionally, most people in the South like the idea of unification. They're nationalists. They didn't want the island to be split up in the first place. But, you know, 
times change and so you know there are other issues to consider and so that's been a fascinating documentary yeah. to work on um and you know I'm, I, I really hope that people like it when it goes out I'm sure it'd be brilliant and as we know in referendums you, you take the outcome for granted at your peril absolutely don't you just and you know something every single commentator that I spoke to mentioned Brexit <laughs> Andrea, I must leave you and, and let you get on uh, and, and make your brilliant show. But this has been a real privilege and I would love to have you back on again in the future. Matt, it's been a lovely, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It really has. I've said a lot of things that I don't think I've uh, no one's ever asked me before. So thank you very much indeed for your wonderful interviewing. It's been well, great. Thanks. That means a lot. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Well, there you go, Andrea Catherwood. I could have talked to her about Northern Ireland for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I didn't even get to ask her about the fact that she's interviewing Tom Hanks uh, in a couple of months. Um, but just, uh, Andrea typifies a particular type of person from Northern Ireland that I just think has so, um, has just such a hopeful take on life. I think it's, it's so inspiring that um, people whose families and communities have been put through the very worst horrors um, can be so graceful towards institutions, individuals that were involved in that. And I just think that gives us hope in life um, that, that is really profound. And of course, I, I just think it's something that all of us, and I, I, particularly from a British perspective, I think we have a duty to know more about what has happened in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. So, uh, you know, however much I think I may follow it, you talk to her and you think, oh my word, I need to pay even more attention to what happens there. But that, that was just something i mean from the moment we started you could just tell some people obviously i mean i reflect on it a lot in on these podcasts but some people just absolutely grab your attention from the first second and, and i it was just that was just a, an amazing a completely immersive uh interview um so um i was obviously interrupting andrew preparing for her fantastic radio 4 show uh, uh, feedback. So make sure you listen to that and come to the live shows of the political party. The 22nd of May, David Blunkett. The 5th of June, Philip Hammond. The 19th of June, Margaret Beckett. The 3rd of July, Joe Lysett. The 2nd of October, Jason Williamson. And lots of shows in between July and October as well that I will uh, confirm soon. Please leave a five-star written review and uh, share it far and wide. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 